I worry that there is a message out there that says women's colleges are not viable, that they're all doomed. Uh, and it's just simply not true. Some of us are doing quite well. Uh, we, we take advantage of every advantage we have. Every women's college has a story to tell. They have a population that they're serving. Um, and when you put all of your assets together and build a community of respect that celebrates the role that you play in your community among women, among educators uh, and others, then um, that helps to set you up for a good long story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, where we bring you closer to the leaders who are shaping the future of higher education. In this episode, we speak with Meredith College President Dr. Joe Allen. As the first alumna to lead the college, President Allen has a unique and personal connection to the institution. During our conversation, we explore her path to becoming president and how her experiences have shaped her approach to leadership. Under her guidance, Meredith College has experienced transformative growth and change, achieving new heights in educational excellence and community engagement. We discuss her strategic initiatives, including the Meredith Forever Strategic Plan, and her approach to fostering a culture of innovation and empowerment, especially for women in higher education. Listen in to hear President Allen's personal insights on leading a college, the power of education in shaping lives, and her hopes for the future of Meredith College. It's a conversation full of real-world experiences and practical wisdom that you won't want to miss. President Allen, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Ingenious You community today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So we're going to go right ahead and start with a question that we often start our conversations with. Our listeners are always very interested in knowing the backstory of our guests. Now, in your case, you are a Meredith College alumna and the very first alumna president, which must undoubtedly be a very meaningful part of your story. Can you tell us about your leadership journey, how you found yourself in the presidency, and how your personal connection to the institution shapes your leadership approach? I think one of the funniest questions that a college president gets asked is, did you always want to be a college president? Uh, and I, I say, no, nobody nobody grew up as a child saying, let's play college president today, you know. Uh, so for everybody who finds themselves fortunate enough to be in these roles, it is a journey. And so I appreciate the opportunity to to tell my story because it is a little different from from uh, the way many presidents come into this role. Uh, but it's it's also a good reminder that there is no one way into a presidency. And so I, I, I say that at the beginning because I think it's really important that as people look towards leadership opportunities, if that's where their interests lie and their passions lie, and they may not even know that uh, at, at, at an early part in their own journey. But um, there's just not one way to go about um, preparing for these roles and, and being privileged enough to, to land one. Um, the other thing I think is really important, though, for women to hear that message, because I think um, 
there's so few women leaders uh, that I think um, the message sometimes gets a bit distorted into this is how women have to do it. Um, and I think women bring so many leadership qualities and so many skill sets in terms of their communication styles, their empathy, their ability to multitask, and all of those things serve so well in a leadership role. So so thank you for letting me start by just saying there, there are multiple pathways into this kind of a leadership role. Mine began, uh, as, you, as you acknowledge, and I, I'm very proud, uh, here at Merritt. And um, I, I had a wonderful undergraduate experience here. Um, I will say I made great friends that I've been friends with throughout my life. Um, they've always been in my life and still are. And it's made this journey even richer than it would have been uh, coming into this kind of a role with uh, all new people around. Uh, and so that that's particularly um, special to me. Um, but Meredith also did a lot of things for me, both uh both intellectually, of course, as well as uh, in developing some discipline, uh, as well as developing some social capacity for um, for seeking out people who either uh, share the same values that I share, but also bring a different set of values. And I learned it was in college that I learned that all of that was interesting, that it was um, it was a good thing to be curious about where people came from, what they do, what they believe and why, um, and and ways that that's similar or different from however I grew up. And I think that's another great quality of leadership is to have sort of a natural curiosity about other people and, and their culture and um, their upbringing and, and families and history. So um, after after Meredith, I got graduate degrees. While my all three degrees are in English, my real um, passion is for writing for um, business science and technology. I like that element of communicating difficult and complex ideas to um, to a range of audiences. Some um, newbies that really don't even know what the subject matter is, and some experts uh, and everywhere along the continuum. Some people who use information to make policy, some people who use information to make budget decisions, some people use information to, um, to align uh, other kinds of opportunities. So that's a big piece, I think, too, about the kind of leader I am. I'm really passionate about the role of communication and making connections. And I think it sort of defines uh, of some element, at least, of the kind of president I am about um, the value in education as being a communication tool. And also then that leadership is also a communication um, a communication tool. So I ended up going back to East Carolina as a faculty member. Really nice to go home and my family was still there and um, very special to me and uh, still still are of course. So um, I, I didn't really know how that would play out. I'm as an English lit major very uh, aware of Thomas Wolfe's You Can't Go Home Again. And that was sort of ringing in my ear as I was saying, accepting an offer from East Carolina. Um, but I turn, turns out that Thomas Wolfe was wrong. And um, it's always uh, exciting to find that's part of a new path as well, is that sometimes the best advice you've gotten turns out not to be suitable for you. And you've got to follow your own heart. So 
Um, from there, I, I was at East Carolina for several years, um, about 12, 13 years. I did a American Council on Education Fellowship at the University of Virginia with President John Castine. That was a wonderful year, well spent in learning more about administration and what it would mean to be a full-time administrator. So I'd had some administrative roles when I was at East Carolina, but doing administration full-time was uh, was really the exploration that, uh, that I enjoyed at, at Virginia. So I went back to East Carolina as the fellowship requires and then went to NC State as a full-time administrator uh, in undergraduate academic affairs and then on to become a provost uh, in Pennsylvania at Widener University. And then the presidency here opened. And um, my president at Widener and I had, had frequently talked if, if I was interested in a presidency, where would I want to be president? I said, that part's easy. I'd want to go back to Merritt. Uh, and it just so happened that I was able to do that. So that's sort of my journey in a nutshell, of a very big nutshell. But um, that opportunity to, you know, not only go home once, go back to East Carolina to be a faculty member, then to go home uh, to be back at Meredith as president. Uh, and now in my retirement, I'll actually be moving back to about uh, five miles from my little hometown in eastern North Carolina. So um, back with my family, and it really does feel full circle and uh, so many glorious adventures along the way, but um, really exciting to be to be closing this chapter of my life and doing something new, but back with people I love. What a wonderful journey. And I really appreciate your sharing it with, with me and with our listeners. You know, the one thing, there's so much wrapped up in what you said, but the, the, your comments about communication um, are so in keeping with uh, what, what I continue to hear from leaders about how critical it is today more than ever to be able to, to make meaning out of complex information. And so for you to have that skill set and that capacity, I'm sure has served you very, very well in the presidential role. I, I think so. I think uh, the, the, the thing I find most disturbing is that with, with equal access to communication and to uh, amplification of, of messages, uh, it is increasingly hard to get through some of the clutter and the chatter, misinformation and disinformation to actually, um, you know, present ideas with some level of educated expertise and preparation and, and all of that. And um, so it, it's both, uh, I think where we are today and communication is both a blessing and a curse. And I guess that's true of most things in life. It depends on how they're used, but, um, but I think, you know, being consistent and understanding and communicating our values and our priorities uh, and, and not only, you know, talking about it, but how you live that is, is yeah. really uh, key. We actually have a worldwide listening audience. And so for those who are not familiar with Meredith, can you give us a high level overview of the institution and some of the things about which you are most proud? Meredith is uh, getting ready to celebrate its 133rd anniversary. Um, we were established in 1891, and uh, we were established and have always been a college for women. And that is still uh, the critical piece of our identity. Uh, at the graduate level, we do have co-ed programs. Um, so there are several things that I think really define us. 
Um, one is that commitment to women's education, but also to women's leadership, also to women's strengths. And uh, I, I mentioned that pretty early in, in my conversation with you, but uh, we actually created a program called Strong Points. That is, uh, it's trademarked for us. It is uh, our distinctive advising and coaching model here uh, at Meredith. And it it's, begins with the premise of, um, of understanding, recognizing that women uh, tend oftentimes to hyperfixate on what's wrong with them. Uh, we keep looking for ways to fix ourselves, whether it's makeup, body image, uh, intelligence. We acknowledge readily things we're not very good at. Um, I hear students say things like, I'm not very good at math. Or, I'm not very good at English or, you know, it's something like that. And it, it tends to be almost a lead for them instead of uh, what we want is to flip that and say, tell me what's great about you. Tell me what's right about you. Tell me what your strengths are. Um, and a lot of times we'll see uh, students, you know, high school students and so forth that we're talking with uh, that are almost perplexed by the question. Mm -hmm. um, they've spent so much of their lives focusing on fixing something about themselves that when you ask them about their strengths, um, you get this momentary stunned um, being on it. So our, our mission is to change that from day one. Let me tell you how we do that. Uh, first, we have our students um, do Clifton Strengths Finder, and we have built an entire program, an entire advising and coaching model around the results of Strengths Finder. So that on day one, all of our students know their top five strengths. And from that, they spend four years learning how to use those strengths. Um, Strong Points itself is a four-part model that's focused on, and these are interwoven into each of the four years that our students are here, so they're not stacked experiences. But it's an academic uh, pathway. What are you going to major in, minor in, so forth? Then second is what's your experiential learning pathway? So are you going to do internships, research, study abroad? Uh, volunteer in the community, or you participate in clubs, organizations, athletics, whatever. Um, third is financial literacy. So how are you going to pay for the life that you want? How do you negotiate a salary? How do you compare benefits packages? Things like that. Because again, we know that women frequently give away their power. They let somebody else make decisions about money in their lives, whether it's a, a husband, a father, a brother, a banker, whatever. Um, and, and I remind students all the time that math is very important, but money's right up there. And it's, it's not always just simple math. There's a lot that goes into really managing money. The fourth part of the Strong Points um, program advising model is the career planning. Uh, and as I said, these, these experiences are woven into all four years. Uh, and so from day one, students have access to our career planning center. Um, they may go over and take some, uh, a couple of tests to measure some passions and interests and uh, capabilities and, and skill sets. Or they may just go and do some exploration and talk with a counselor about how will I decide, you know, what my career should be. We always remind them that, you know, age 17 and 18 is a little young to have to make a firm decision on that. Um, but, it, but it starts uh, guiding some conversation and building confidence. And that's ultimately the goal of Strong Points is uh, to make sure that, that our students know what's right about them. They know what their strengths are, and it builds the confidence uh, to explore, 
to recognize that if they make a misstep, if they make an error, it's not the end of the world. There's a there's a step back. There's a way to recalibrate and reach out for support and help and figure out what the lessons to be learned are from whatever that experience is. So I will say that those are sort of some key elements of what's distinctive about Meredith. The other big thing about Meredith is we are located in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a, a lovely city and the state capital of North Carolina. So it not only brings a lot of opportunities for our students to be out and about and testing what they're learning, whether it's political science, we've got the state capital, the legislature here. Um, we're the center of arts in the state. We're the center of technology in the state. Um, and so, so many opportunities for uh, our students to be out and about, building networks, testing what they're learning throughout the community. And then finally, what I'll say about Raleigh is that um, not only are we the center of the state geographically, which gives us beautiful access to the mountains and to the beaches of North Carolina, including the Outer Banks, um, but but Raleigh is a um, it is a city of college students in many ways. So in addition to the arts, the legislature, and things like that, um, there are five, six, seven, uh, six. Um, institutions here that cooperate with each other that we're called the cooperating Raleigh colleges it's one community college and then five four-year uh, institutions plus the universities and uh, our students can take classes at any of those uh, our faculty work together uh, collaborate on research and teaching initiatives and um, our security forces compare notes our business uh, CFOs compare models of working together. So a very collaborative culture that we're embedded in right here in Raleigh in a, just a terrific, terrific city. Now, under your presidency, Meredith College has seen the successful implementation of the Meredith Forever Strategic Plan. What are the key elements of this plan? And in your from your perspective, how has it transformed the college? First of all, it started with a visioning day, and we brought in um, a facilitator to work with us, but it was faculty and staff. It was some alumni. It was some trustees. It was even some of our competitors we invited in, uh, asking questions about, you know, what is Meredith and what should Meredith be? Uh, what could Meredith be? And we, we asked all sorts of questions. Uh, we even asked the question about, going co-ed, should we consider that? And mm -hmm. interestingly, the response there was 50-50. Um, a lot of people thought yes, a lot of people thought no. And um, we, have, we have remained true to our roots as a women's college, but it, it was an interesting question to throw out mm -hmm. into that crowd. Um, from, their, um, from their thoughts though, we built a plan uh, initially with five pillars that I think are pretty um, generic and open, any, any institution would look at these and say, there's nothing, really, it's what we all do, okay? Um, so those five are educational excellence, optimal enrollment, financial strength, facilities and IT, and marketing and visibility. So that fifth one there was a little unique, maybe, as a separate, uh, as a separate piece. But one of the things we found is that, I mean, when I was growing up in North Carolina, everybody knew Meredith, um, that long history and reputation for excellence and, and outstanding alumni and so forth. 
the area of Raleigh and the Research Triangle Park, however, has grown so much so quickly that we realized there are people moving to Raleigh who'd lived here for for a bit and still never didn't know anything about it. Didn't know where it was, didn't know what it was or anything like that. And we realized we needed to start retelling our story. Uh, we needed to be more public, more visible and all of that. Uh, and so that was the reason that visibility and marketing became uh, one of the pillars of the plan. Uh, we we left the so the five pillars were in place for a, for a month or two, and I think we all just felt there was something missing about it, and we finally realized what was missing was what makes Meredith unique, and that is the quality of life here, uh, the commitment to each other, the commitment to our students, the commitment to our alumni. Um, it, it's an ongoing sense of um, collaboration, community, accountability, um, concern, and they're just things that we do that a, a lot of institutions just don't do. And um, part of it is the value of being a, a smaller institution. Part of it is the value of uh, long-term employment uh, and loyalty to this college. But um, you know, we, we've got resources that we, we make publicly known or available to students in emergencies or to faculty and staff in emergencies. Um, we look for ways to invest in renewal, uh, not only just faculty development, but we actually have a staff sabbatical program. A lot of people are used to um, faculty sabbaticals, but we do staff sabbaticals as well as a way to renew and replenish uh, some new interest you have of a, a how you'll do your job better, how you'll um, learn a new software package or a new process or something like that. Um, and so that whole sense of, of caring is, is really important. So we added the sixth pillar, which is quality of life. Uh, and then we really committed to these. And uh, the good thing is, instead of making it a five or 10 year plan, we made it a rolling plan. So we did the first, uh, the first installation of it was a three-year plan uh, that we assessed annually. We reported the assessment to the uh, Board of Trustees and then to the whole community. Um, then we followed that with a two-year plan, and we did the same thing. We followed that five-year plan, and now we are um, doing a one-year plan because of my retirement. I don't want to hand a new plan to the next president. I think that would probably not be too kind to the person who hasn't even had a chance to get to know the community yet. Um, but um, but keeping that fresh has been really helpful. I think a lot of people get in a sort of a rut with a strategic plan. There's a lot of energy around creating it. People tend to front load them, which mm -hmm. exhausts everybody and they go on a shelf. And our strategic plan does not stay on the shelf. It is something we review annually. Um, we begin each year with low-hanging fruit. What is it we can do pretty quickly, put into place? What are the things we need to modify that we learned from last year's um, uh, assessment of, of impact that um, this was the intention? Is it what we actually got out of it? Uh, and if the answer is no, then we've got to revise it. You know, Sometimes we, we drop things. We say, you know, we thought that was a really good idea. We can't do it either because it's um, it's impinging on another priority we have 
or we don't have the resources, or we lost the person who was going to take the lead on this, um, or there's just no appetite for it anymore. It's it's not the good idea we thought it was going to be. So I think being really open and flexible about the plan at the same time being true to it and holding ourselves accountable to it, I think there's a there's a sweet spot in there that we found. Um, the other, the one last thing I'll say about the advantage of sort of the rolling incrementally different uh, plans is that people, I've seen institutions that would adopt the 10-year plan. And for someone whose idea was not adopted, there's never buy-in to that plan. Mm -hmm. And the feeling is it'll be another 10 years before anybody will really listen to my idea because it didn't make it into the plan. And we didn't want that to happen. Um, we believe everybody's ideas are valuable. We may not be able to do it right now, but let's let's keep that in mind because we want to set up this plan so that three years from now, when we're ready to, to do another iteration of the plan, we want to bring that idea back. You have the experience. You've completed most of the coursework in a doctoral program, but you have not completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation, status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way from your dedicated faculty advisor to your small dissertation seminar group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. During your presidency, you have overseen the successful completion of a campaign that raised over 90 million, which for an institution of your size, as you know, is quite an achievement. So tell me what you did to achieve those results. First of all, I have a fabulous advancement team, I should say. Great leadership there. Um, they're fun to work with. People want to work with them. And um, they 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 just are, are great listeners, but they're they're great celebratory partners as well. So I think there are times that donors get the idea of whatever I give, it's never enough for you. And so part of what we did, I think, was really flipping that and mm -hmm. saying whatever you give is meaningful to us. Um, and we thank you and we find ways to celebrate that. Um, one of the one of the key things we did that I, I think was invaluable, and we continue this to this day, is uh, on Tuesdays, and I've written about this elsewhere, but 
On Tuesdays, the vice president and uh, associate vice president for advancement come to my house in the afternoon, late afternoon. And we work through a list of prospects. We talk about events. We talk about strategy. We talk about needs for the college and really do a lot of conversation about matching those things up. Um, and yes, we have a glass of wine and some cheese straws or something like that. Um, but the, the advantage is we're away from the office. So they're at my home. We're away from the office. The phones are not ringing. People are not interrupting. At the same time, we've got our phones. So when I'm saying, well, I really need to remind me to talk to so-and-so, we'll see. I said, I've got my phone right here. I'm going to text them right now. Are you free for breakfast tomorrow? You know, so there's some things that get done immediately in that in that moment of um, sort of fun and why would we wait till tomorrow? Let's go ahead and do it now. And, um, at the end of our time together, I have a list of homework, of people to call, a proposal to write, a, uh, you know, somebody to visit or, or something like that. Uh, they have their list of homework and, and we are committed to getting it done uh, by the next Tuesday. And so we stay on track and we, um, we also take this time to, um, there, there is what a, what a lot of people don't know, I guess, about institutional advancement is there is, there's a slight gossipy side of it. Uh, and it's by necessity. It's not mean spirited. It is because it is important for us to know that you should never see these two people at dinner together or even invite them to the same dinner. Because while they seem to have a lot of interest in, in store, they also had a business together that failed 20 years ago and they've never overcome the bitterness of it. Or, um, you know, their, their daughter and his son were married for a while, nasty divorce. You don't, so there are things like that. And people see the, the good side of making connections in institutional advancement. Like we need to get so-and-so to help us get to this other person. Um, but there's sometimes some unraveling there that you need to do as well. And so that's really helpful to say, okay, tell me the connection between these two or how can how can this person bring along somebody else for, for this event or something like that. So uh, I think that's been incredibly helpful. It helped me as a new president to get to know, even though I knew my own classmates, I didn't know the years of alumni. Um, it was a good way for me to learn that. Um, it was a good way for me to learn who our who our likely corporate partners would be. Um, so I, I think that that was certainly one big key. The other thing is we definitely embedded that campaign in the strategic plan. So every document we had about the strategic plan we used in marketing uh, and building the case study for the campaign. So we could talk about accountability from day one. These are our priorities. These are things we've already done there. This is how we know it's working and making an impact. Now with your gift, we can ramp that up. We can double the efforts and things like that. So um, the biggest thing I see about donors, they sort of fall into two classes. Uh, one group of donors um, is, is an admittedly pretty small group, but has a lot of impact. And that's the group of donors that wants to fix something. Um, and it's a group that you have to steward very carefully because a lot of times their idea of how to fix something 
is something that you already know is going to work. So that takes a great deal of concentration, communication, and so forth. And then there's a, a another group of donors. It's a, really a much larger group of donors. Um, and, and they want to back a winner. Um, they don't want to fix anything. They want to know that their money is going towards something that is already um, attractive, is already got a great reputation, has already got, um, you, you know, it's already a known winner, as we say. So, you know, figuring out who you're dealing with was really a key piece, knowing that there were certain people we could not go to to ask for help with infrastructure and other people that wanted their name on something. Um, and those can be very mutually exclusive groups. So um, our, our one of our favorite donors is is, um, is anonymous and um, but constantly funds things like a new electric grid for mm -hmm. the campus, um, sidewalk repairs, um, some kind of you know piping issue that you know, from the old steam buildings and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you sort of figure out who, what, what the, everybody says you got to figure out what the donor's passions are. We know that intellectually, but to actually see that happen, to actually see how you get to figure out what they're passionate about. And sometimes it's, it's a ways away from what you thought their passions mm -hmm. um, and being open to, to explore and that is interesting. You have also seen substantial renovations and new constructions during your time. And, and that I imagine has gone hand in hand with the campaign and the fundraising that you've done. Um, how do you believe that the physical changes have impacted the college, its environment and the student experience overall? I think in terms of, of capital projects, you, you sort of put, figure out some perspective on, on why you're investing in capital projects. Is it because your competitors have a lazy river or is it because, um, you know, there's there's something meaningful that's very attractive to students uh, and faculty and staff that being in this place. Um, so for us, in that focus on strengths, for instance, uh, we needed to make some uh, changes for academic buildings, for academic programming, where our students had access to better technology and equipment to um, to practice and learn better. So, for instance, we just built a new building, um, half of which is dedicated to exercise uh, uh, and sports science. And the students have incredible labs there. And so when they graduate from Meredith and go to work as a trainer or go into a physical therapy uh, setting or to a PT graduate school or something like that, uh, they're already used to the equipment. They already know what's there. So that's part of a capital investment for us. Um, the second thing I would say, though, is just general upkeep and, and maintenance and things like that. I mean, you, you're you running a small city, and people notice when, you know, the curbs are not even. They notice when the lawn is not manicured. They notice when, um, when uh, paint is chipping off the, the window sills and things like that. And and that's a subliminal message to people that if this place does not look well cared for, what does that say? Do, do these people not see this? Do they not have the money to fix it? What's the problem? 
Um, so that those are certainly some some key components about um, the capital projects that we've worked on. But I think a lot of it is is just again tying it to our strategic plan that the capital improvements are not only a pillar of the strategic plan, but it's part of how the pillars interact. So capital projects that support academic programming, um, capital projects that support uh, enrollment growth. So for instance, one of the things we did in, in renovating this rotunda, we spent three and a half million dollars renovating the rotunda and, and adding a welcome center for admissions who, you know, for previously admissions was on the second floor, but that's not terribly welcoming to students, you know, they want to walk in and see things. Um, and so we've done a great deal of renovations. We've done a significant building, mostly mostly renovations more than building. Um, but keeping things up, keeping things looking like um, this is a, a place that respects itself um, and welcomes people. And the one other thing I'll say that is so key here, and I think uh, importantly ties to uh, the support for the campaign and, and our donors and, and how beloved this college really is, um, is that we've done all of this and we've not borrowed a pen to do oh. So everything has been paid for. And um, I don't know that it will always be that way. There may be some big projects coming down the pike that would, you know, um, make it wiser to borrow money, but we just haven't done that during my tenure. So uh, I'm really proud but yes, I'm grateful to donors who shared the vision, you know. You have served on a number of national boards. You've served in leadership roles on those boards. So you have a really good uh, bird's eye view, if you will, of what's happening in higher education. And so what do you see as the key trends and challenges facing higher education today, particularly for women's colleges, single gender institutions? And do you have any advice for leaders of these institutions and particularly those who are leading your sister institutions, leading women's colleges? Is there a future for women's higher ed? I definitely think there's a future for women's colleges. Uh, and I think it is uh, both truth to and changing from our past. Um, I think we have we've seen throughout uh, the history of higher education period, um, as well as specifically in, in the United States, that uh, women's intellect and skill sets and uh, opportunities have been underestimated. And uh, I think it is through uh, some uh, sort of, um, you know, this power in numbers, and the power in numbers here at Meredith is that, for instance, all leadership roles uh, among student body are held by women. And when we talk about leadership, it is not just a title that students get. It is coaching and leadership. It's helping them to understand budgets and management, delegation, and accountability and following through and time management and things like that. So, so I think those are some critical distinctions for uh, for women's colleges in the ways that we serve our students, that it's not um, it's not one size fits all. It's recognizing um, their interests, their passions, also getting them to work with their strengths again. It's one of those things when you have a student with a a, a problem 
Um, and, and, and you can say, let's talk about your five strengths. Can you pull, can you pull out one of those and use that strength to, to let's talk through this problem and how you might find a solution, how you might find something different. Um, I think the other thing is with, especially with our older students, our returning students, now it's their turn. Um, they finally got their kids in kindergarten, uh, first grade, whatever, it's their turn. And a lot of them finished degrees years ago and um, have, have realized, you know, what I really wanted to do was to be an interior designer. Or what I really wanted to do was to own my own business. And here's an opportunity to go back. What Meredith does is if you have a degree from an accredited institution, um, you can come back and just get a major uh, with us. And at most, it's a two-year program. Um, but you leave with the skill set, with internship opportunities, with a portfolio um, that you can say, I'm an interior decorator. And I didn't know I wanted to be that when I was in school, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but uh, I found my niche and I really want to study it. I want to do more than just guess uh, about decisions that I make, or I want to be a teacher name, or I want to be uh, a, a something else. And I think women are so good at reinventing themselves when they're surrounded by a, a culture that says that is not only okay, that's exciting to reinvent yourself. And we know that women are likely to do that anyway. Here's a support for it, right? Here's an educational foundation for it. Here is scholarship money to do that so that, again, you're building your confidence and going in a new direction. I think there are things like that that make, um, that make the viability of women's colleges uh, strong. I worry that there is a message out there that says women's colleges are not viable, that they're all doomed. Uh, and it's just simply not true. Some of us are doing quite well. Uh, we, we take advantage of every advantage we have. As I say, I never downplayed the fact that we're in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, the place that people want to live. Uh, the, the influx of, of people into this area is, is tremendous, but we're also surrounded by rural counties. So people who like to live on a farm and drive into the city to work or vice versa, you know, there are all kinds of ways to see what your advantages are. Location for us is just one of those. Um, but I think every women's college has a story to tell. They have a population that they're serving. Um, and when you put all of your assets together and build a community of respect that celebrates the role that you play in your community among women, among educators uh, and others, then um, that helps to set you up for a good long story to be able to tell. Well, you are a powerful advocate for women's, for women's education. I hope you will continue being an advocate even uh, into your next uh, phase of life, which is the next question I actually wanted to ask you. And that's about your legacy and what you're thinking in terms of the legacy you hope to leave behind. A couple of things. Well, one is um, I have uh, accepted an invitation from the Council of Independent Colleges to be their president in residence 
2024. So starting in January of 24 and ending in January of 25, I'll be working with uh, CIC on the President's Institute, uh, which is a wonderful, you know, four or five day program that's really committed to um, having presidents talk among presidents about issues, opportunities, concerns, and so forth. So I I'm delighted to be asked to do that. And I get to sort of share um, sort of my network of folks that I've called on throughout the years and all of that. So that's one thing. Um, I certainly intend to be available for um, for friends, colleagues, and, and new folks to to talk about leadership and, and higher education, and especially being a woman in higher education. Um, so that that's sort of an ongoing commitment. Uh, and I'm working on a book, uh, which I've been working on for a couple of years now. So uh, I really thought the pandemic would give me a chance to finish it. Um, turns out the pandemic took a lot more of our time than we thought it would. But um, but it's really about being a new president, uh, stepping oh. into it. So it's basically about onboarding a new president and all the decisions that need to be made uh, in the first year of the president's uh, tenure. Uh, and as I say, there are a lot of great books out there on capital L leadership. <laughs> you know, this is a book about little L leadership. This is about the daily decisions that you'll be confronted with. And it's it's really ideal for potential presidents to, to read and search committees and boards and faculty, because um, most people think they know what the presidency is. And most people are just dead wrong. It's just not that. And. Uh, it's so many other little things and and one big, you know, um, gaff can can create a lot of trust issues and, and so forth. So sort of doing the best you can to get it right from the start uh, is, is another key piece. So those are those are three things on my plate. And um, mostly I'm looking forward, though, to, to reading a novel that has nothing to do with <laughs> higher education. I, I, I kid with my friends and say, I want to explore this new literary genre. It's called a beach book. And I'm <laughs> going to find one of those and see what it's like, you know. But um, no, it's, it's uh, being with my family is, is a big piece of this. Uh, and, and in going back home that, you know, reconnecting with old friends that have been so kind and um, supportive of me throughout the years. But uh, to actually to live with them again is going to be uh, quite a thrill. Oh, I can only imagine. So I'm glad you're going to be involved with the CIC and the President's Institute. That's a wonderful use of your gifts and talents. And I will look forward to your book coming out and to reading it. And then maybe I can circle back if you're available and get you back on the podcast to talk about the book when it's that out. That would be great. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. So President Allen, I have one final question and our time is almost up. And it is a signature question we ask of everybody on the podcast. And the question is this, if you could leave one transformative idea or piece of advice that would shape the future of higher education, what would it be and why? It would be that higher education is not something to be squandered. Um, it, I, I tell people, you know, we face all kinds of problems you know, in, in the nation and around the globe. Um, 
And in my mind, if education is not the answer, I don't know what is. Um, because it's education that opens doors for communication, for collaboration, for shared experiences, for shared values, for building um, a, a comprehensive global vision for what we want humanity to be, uh, what we hold dear and uh, what we expect of ourselves and each other. Uh, I think education is just the, the foundation for all of those critical uh, considerations. And um, when I hear people question the value of college degrees or whatever, um, it, 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 it almost sickens me because it's um, the, the lost opportunity there is, is pretty much all I can see. And I, I see so many people, I see, I see women a lot of times that hard workers, good-hearted, wonderful people, but unhappy because they've reached a point in their lives where they think, is this all there is? And there's so many times I think if if you just had more education, you'd have more windows open, you'd have more doors open, you'd have more pathways open, um, you'd have more freeways open, and um, you could see so many more things that you could bring into your life in ways that you could give back to others that would be so enriching and that would that would bring you great joy. And I think everybody deserves great joy. And so from my perspective, education is, is, the, is the root of all that. It is the good soil in which we grow and um, it should not be squandered. I share, I share your passion for that. So President Allen, thank you so, so very much thank for your you. time. I wish you all the best in thank the you. next phase of your journey. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this tremendously. And that's a wrap on today's Ingenious You episode. A very big thank you for tuning in and sharing this time with us. Don't forget to stay in the loop with our Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice, the hub that brings this podcast to life. Chellup is also behind the free monthly webinars on all things cutting edge in higher ed and offers some terrific certificate programs to boot. Have you checked out our YouTube channel yet? It's where the magic of our top rated episodes from past seasons comes alive with video interviews. Hit that subscribe button so you're always in the know with our latest, greatest content. Like what you heard? Take a moment to rate and review Ingenious You on your podcast platform of choice. Spread the word to your friends and colleagues and invite them to join our Ingenious You circle. Until next time, keep innovating, keep inspiring, and keep making a difference. Stay safe, stay connected, and above all, stay ingenious. Stay ingenious.